Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from the battlefront as Ukraine counterattacks across Donbass. We analyze the news that the US has accused South Africa of secretly supplying Russian forces. And we have special interviews on the Russian ambassador's visit to Oxford, Russian oligarchs in Turkey, and an update on Germany's role in the war in Ukraine and the troubled legacy of the Treaty of Versailles. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 12th of May, one year and 77 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley, freelance reporter and final year student at Oxford University Charlie Hancock, and we also interview The Telegraph's economic reporter Melissa Lawford, and Dr Thomas Clausen, who works at a liberal think tank in Berlin. I started, however, by asking Dom Nichols, for the latest from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Hi, Charlie. Let's um, let's start in the Donbass. So there's reports from Russia. I'm a bit annoyed here because I was going to keep this as my final thought, which I still will, so I won't give it all away. But um, there's been Russia reporting contacts with the Ukrainian forces up and down the line. They've said a 60-mile stretch around the front of in the area of Bakhmut as in contact, they've said 40 tanks and more than 1,000 Ukrainian service personnel involved in the offensive operations from Solidar region in the Donetsk Oblast. I'll come back to that later. That, as I say, that's just from TASS, the Russian state news agency. But let's, uh, let's just stay in the Donbass and round Bakhmut for now. So Yevgeny Prigozhin, he's continuing his, uh, his info campaign. He's written a letter to Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu asking him to personally come to Bakhmut to, quote, independently assess the situation after a number of successful counterattacks, his words, from Ukrainian forces. 
So he put this out, he wrote to Shoigu and he's put it out on Telegram this morning, describing the situation in Bakhmut as a difficult operational situation. Everyone seems to be saying Bakhmut is difficult, which it clearly is, although I think it's still a massive understatement. So Brigozhin asked Shoigu and then said, in quotes, with his many years of experience leading combat operations to come to Bakhmut to evaluate the situation. Now that is a dig at Shoigu's lack of military experience. He's a, He's the top of the tree clearly he's the defense minister but he doesn't come from a combat background i think he's um he's engineers and, and logs i think shoigu but anyway this is used to it's a stick with which he's been beaten in the past it's interesting that in the same week that Prigozhin's trying to ask for um, or is asking for more ammo he then he then brings it up again because it is it is known to be a dig at shoigu now yesterday russia's defense ministry denied ukrainian forces a broken through at various points along the front line said the military situation was under control so that's slightly i mean they're not saying today is not under control but they're reporting wider contacts Prigozhin went on he said taking into account the difficult situation as well as your many years of experience leading combat operations that was the dig i asked you to come to the territory of bakhmut which is under the control of paramilitary units i.e wagner of the russian federation and independently assess the current situation uh, he said the enemy has undertaken a number of successful counterattacks against Russian army units on Wagner's flanks. So we think Wagner's in the middle, around in, in the city itself, with regular Russian armed forces, particularly from the VDV, the airborne forces, on the flanks. And, and pretty certain they're on the southern flank. Not sure about the north. That might be the so-called Donetsk People's Republic militia. But there's all these different groupings in there, which I think is why... Ukraine having some success there. Now, Prigozhin said that the counteroffensive is in full swing, I think probably in order to get attention. And of course, there has been focus on Bakhmut this week. Ukraine have taken territory back in the southwest corner, which is where we think the Russian airborne forces either are or have been rushed into to stop that, stop that push through. And Kremlin sources or pro-Kremlin mill blog community are saying that this push from from Ukrainian forces has increased their grip over the what they call the road of life. That's the road out to the southwest, the the last of su- surviving route of, of resupply for Ukrainian forces in the city. Now, more on these counterattacks. So Hannah Malyar, who's Ukraine's deputy defence minister, she said this morning Ukraine have advanced a couple of kilometres, two kilometres in Bakhmut, and that Russia has suffered significant losses of manpower, her words. So again, this was this morning on Telegram. Ms. Malyar, she confirmed the advance and said we haven't lost a single position in Bakhmut this week. And then linked to this, we've got the commander of Russia's Black Sea fleet, has said defences are being tightened following a series of drone strikes that have targeted Sevastopol in Crimea, the home base of the uh, of the Black Sea Fleet, although the Kilo-class subs have all gone to um, Novorossiya in Russia. So this is Vice Admiral Viktor Sokolov. Uh, he was speaking to Krasnaya Zevda, Russian means Red Star, Russian newspaper, military newspaper. He said, in connection with the threat of attacks by robotic surface and underwater systems, we've increased the technical defensive defences of the fleet's main base and of the ship's anchorages. Now, we know Sevastopol and elsewhere, but Sevastopol in particular, has been repeatedly attacked with drones, maritime drones, although Ukraine never claimed responsibility for any of these strikes. But in this interview, Vice Admiral Sokolov, he also said the Black Sea 
fleet would receive four new ships in 2023. They need them. You'll remember the Moskva, the flagship of the Black Sea fleet, was uh, was sunk last April. Now, sticking with this with this theme of um, Black Sea fleet, today's UK Defence Intelligence report says that overnight on the 8th, 9th of May, vessels from the Black Sea fleet launched eight SSN-30A Sagaris land attack cruise missiles against Ukraine. Now, UK Defence Intelligence is saying they, they Russia had temporarily suspended use of these cruise missiles in March, or, or after March they'd been massively less used, if that's, if that's good England, because they were, they were worried about their, their stocks. They go on to say that Russia likely sees land attack cruise missiles as a key capability to strike deep into Ukraine and disrupt the you know, the anticipated counteroffensive. So this weapon, the Sagaris, is part of the Caliber family. We talk about the Caliber cruise missile. So Sagaris is, is a you know cousin of the Caliber. Estimated range of fifteen hundred to two and a half thousand kilometers. I mentioned that because Andre Kellin, Russia's ambassador to the UK, he said last night, and we're going to hear from Charlie later to explain and expand on this. But he said last night that Britain was escalating the war by sending Storm Shadow cruise missiles. That uh, was announced yesterday. But Storm Shadow has a range less than a quarter of Sagaris. So, you know, they're talking talking out of their Balkans again. So Kellin said, it's a very big escalation for the conflict. Western countries were prudent enough not to do this before. I mean, look, you know, you can al- almost hear him sighing, oh, you know, when he's talking about this. But I think that's probably the... That, that sound is the sound of his soul leaving his body because he realises he's got to trot out all this rubbish yet again. But anyway, we're going to hear more about that Oxford meeting shortly with Charlie, who, uh, who was at the meeting. And I'll, um, I'll take a pause there. Thanks, Don. Just quickly, from your perspective, do you think that these attacks in the Donbass are still part of what we would call a shaping operation? I mean, some people are, are thinking that it might be the start of, of the much-anticipated counteroffensive. Or is that question actually not particularly helpful at this point? We may, not, may, we may just not know. Well, I mean, we don't know. That's straight up. We can apply sensible analysis to it. I'm just pausing because, you know, we've only been doing this for about 15 months. And every day I get surprised when you say, right, final thoughts. I go, shit, I haven't thought of anything. So I've actually put some thought into it today. And I'm going to answer that as my final thought. So, So hold that idea and I will come back to it. All right, fair enough. Thank you, Dom. Francis Sternley, alongside the military developments from yesterday, there's been quite a lot of movement diplomatically. Can you talk us through what you're seeing? Thanks, David. Lots of smaller stories today, which I will try and whiz through as quickly as we can. Beijing has announced that China will send a special envoy to Ukraine, Russia and other European countries to discuss a political settlement to the war in Ukraine. No great shock there, of course. We've known this is coming. But a foreign ministry spokesman has told a press conference that from May 15th, a special representative of the Chinese government for Eurasian affairs will visit Ukraine, Poland, France, Germany and Russia. Russia to communicate with all parties on the political settlement of the Ukrainian crisis. Now, for reasons I've discussed in earlier podcasts, I don't believe this is going to change much. Neither side wants negotiations at this point. But that doesn't mean this is insignificant. China is, as we've spoken about, trying to act as a key broker here. And I think the other interesting thing is the countries that they've chosen to go and see. Of the four, of course, Poland is believed to be the one that seems the least amenable to any kind of deal that sees Russia gain advantage or territory from this war. Whereas France and Germany are believed to be slightly more anxious about the duration of this war and are more fearful of escalation. 
It's noticeable as well, of course, that uh, France and Germany have been reaching out to China this past year or so. Schultz, by pushing through his controversial Chinese investment in a Hamburg port and Macron in his visit to Beijing recently. So something to observe there, I think, and perhaps some evidence that those conversations are perhaps a little bit further advanced than we thought in terms of conversations between those powers. In other news, a quick update on the grain deal. I said earlier in the week that all evidence pointed to there being an extension agreed by the deadline of the 18th of May. And so it seems parties to the Black Sea grain deal are expected to be approaching an agreement today or tomorrow, extending it following the two days of talks in Istanbul between the parties concerned. Russia, of course, said that they would let the deal expire unless they secured guarantees that its demands to remove obstacles to its own grain and agricultural exports would be met by the deadline. Now, we still don't know what terms may be being agreed, but nonetheless, it will be a significant development if it is extended, as it could reduce some sanctions on Russia as the price of doing so. This matters, of course, not only for European food markets, but also for Africa. And it's there that I'm going to turn for our next story, A row has broken out today following an announcement by the US that South Africa has provided Russia with weapons and ammunition for its war in Ukraine. The American ambassador has made the pretty extraordinary step of going public on this. He said that the country has loaded arms and ammunition onto a Russian vessel back in December, despite Pretoria claiming it wished to remain neutral in the conflict. The ambassador said it was convinced its intelligence was correct and considered Considered the arming of Russian forces to be extremely dangerous. Now, this accusation follows months of frustration from Western diplomats that South African government officials had been cozying up to Russia. Listeners will, of course, remember a sanctioned Russian cargo ship called Lady R that was seen docking at a naval base outside Cape Town back in December. And indeed, we actually had an email from a listener who said, I'm looking outside my window and I can see the ship. So greetings to to that listener and thank you for writing to us. The arrival of that ship prompted widespread speculation at the time, but its cargo was never confirmed. Then, of course, more recently, we had Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister. He was given a warm welcome and the South African Navy joint naval drills with Russia and China in the Indian Ocean. South Africa has also refused consistently to condemn the invasion by its fellow member of the BRICS bloc of nations. The ruling African National Congress has had warm ties with Moscow for decades after the USSR backed its struggle against apartheid. Erica Gibson, who is a leading South African defence expert, has told The Telegraph that the consignment was most likely containing ammunition for AK-47 assault rifles. Interestingly, the leader of the Democratic Alliance Opposition Party has accused the government of lying about South Africa's involvement in the conflict. So this is not without controversy in the country itself. He has said that the American accusations were a chilling and deeply troubling confirmation that the president and his government are actively involved in the Russian Federation's war in Ukraine. This development, he goes on, 
proves not only that South Africa is not non-aligned in Russia's war on Ukraine, but the president and his government have already lied to South Africa and the world as to our country's involvement in this devastating conflict. Now, I should say that the South African government has denied robustly that it approved any arms shipment from Russia, though with an interesting caveat that the minister who chairs the country's National Conventional Arms Control Committee said that if weapons were loaded onto a vessel bound for Russia from South Africa, that that was illegal and inappropriate. And as I say, as somebody who used to work in politics, I always find those kind of caveats rather revealing. But just one last word on South Africa, as I know we have many listeners there who reach out to us, as I say, and I'm I'm very grateful to one who wrote to us yesterday a little bit more about the South African situation and flagged an interesting story from South Africa's Sunday Times about former President Jacob Zumba's daughter, Dudu Zumba Sambudla, who acted as a super influencer for a Russian campaign to strengthen support for its invasion of Ukraine. So... Bloomberg have cited a social media research conducted by the Center for Information Resilience, the CIR, who allege that uh, this individual is at the forefront of Russia's drive to sway public opinion to its side in South Africa and beyond. And indeed, this figure has hailed Putin as Africa's saviour and has many tweets bearing her name with the hashtags I stand with Russia and I stand with Putin. The CIR vice president said that the evidence is compelling. She is a clear driver of the campaign and the origin point for many of the tweets that were replicated around the South African information environment and eventually even further afield. So quite an interesting story about some of the uh, alleged activity going on in South Africa at the moment with Russia and relating to the war in Ukraine. Now, one final story. Listeners may or may not be aware that Saturday is the grand final of the Eurovision Song Contest. And those of of you who've been with us from the beginning will recall that last year's contest was a significant cultural moment, I think it's fair to say, for Ukraine, who won the contest by a landslide in the public vote, widely interpreted as a signal of support for the country following the invasion. Now, the winner usually hosts the competition the following year. But because Ukraine is, of course, at war, it was decided that the country which won second place the UK, would host the competition instead in the city of Liverpool. Now, you might be glazing over hearing this and thinking, who cares? But Eurovision is a big deal. It's expected to have 160 million viewers on Saturday. And the spotlight will, of course, be on Ukraine and its plight once again for many people who have not been following this war as closely as we all have. It offers millions an opportunity to learn more about the cities of Ukraine, for instance. They show snapshots and images of the cities before each song. And there will, of course, be many references to the fact that Ukraine won the competition last year in very difficult circumstances. There are going to be 11 Ukrainian artists featured in the Ukrainian delegation. And Liverpool has been decorated with Ukrainian symbols and flags and is going to welcome over 3,000 refugees who've fled Ukraine. Now, the reason I mention this is that if Ukraine, of course, wins again, it will once again show that Europe is behind them, though that 
may not be necessary given that the event itself is really a celebration of Ukraine this and what it is valiantly fighting against. But the story, which is why I mention it in this segment, is that Zelensky actually wanted to speak at the contest, but it doesn't seem he's going to be allowed to do so for fear from the organisers that it will too overtly politicise the event. So the European Broadcasting Union, which is an alliance of 112 member organisations which organise the contest, have said that while Zelensky has laudable intentions, regrettably his request is against the rules. The contest is an entertainment show and governed by strict rules and principles which have been established since its creation, they say. As part of these, one of the cornerstones of the contest is the non-political nature of the event. This principle prohibits the possibility of making political or similar statements as part of the contest. No doubt this will come as a frustration for President Zelensky, but I think regardless, the event will be another significant moment for keeping the world's attention on the war. But more on that, David, in my final thought. Thank you, Francis. Yesterday, I caught up with The Telegraph's economic reporter, Melissa Lawford, who's been looking into how Russian oligarchs are travelling abroad to evade Western sanctions. Here's our conversation. Melissa Lawford, thank you so much for your time. Many Western countries have enacted sanctions against Russian oligarchs over the past year. You're looking to some of the ways the Russian elite are avoiding them. Talk to us about your story. Thank you. I think there's a few things when it comes to sanctions and and how the Russian elite are continuing to live their lives in actually quite a nice way in I think almost all cases. Years ago, more than a year ago, at the start of the war, there was this idea that by sanctioning all of the elite, all of the oligarchs, it would perhaps sway the course of the war because they would rise up against Putin and because they would be so angry with the imposition on their lifestyle. And that categorically has not happened. And there are a few elements to that. First of all, I think actually the number of influential oligarchs who have been targeted, I think is actually a very small proportion. And then second of all, those that have been targeted, and indeed also the elite Russians who maybe haven't been directly targeted, but are indirectly impacted by sanctions on Russian companies, by where they can move, by where their money can go. The effects, the sort of punitive impact of those policies has been mitigated by the fact that there are a few places around the world which have opened the gates to them. One of them is is Dubai and one which uh, I want to focus on now is Turkey. So Turkey, I think it was their foreign minister, someone high up in their government came out quite early on in, in March 22 and said, you can come here. As long as you're not doing anything illegal, you can bring your money here. And they really have. You know, I I went down a little internet wormhole into these marine vessel tracking websites and started looking at where all of the super yachts were. And a lot of these super yachts that are are linked to sanctioned oligarchs, Roman Abramovich, among them, you know, they're, they're all clustered around these wonderful beachy ports on the Turkish coast. And I was talking to a guy who runs a company that works for the Russian elite. And he's wealthy Russians. He's talking about them as a collective body, not not just the ones that have been sanctioned. He was like, their lives are fine. They've gone to Dubai. They've gone to Turkey. They're, They're still enjoying a really high quality of life. What do we know about what they get up to in Turkey? What are their lives like? 
Well, they are spending quite a lot of money. <laughs> the numbers are are really clear. The Turkish government actually has very good data on property transactions and the breakdown of, of foreign ownership of property transactions. So in 2022, Russian investment into Turkish property nearly tripled, jumped from about 5,300 deals in 21 to 16,300 deals last year. And that momentum has, has continued into uh, into March this year is the latest data available. They've gone from being sort of the third largest foreign buyer contingent in, in Russia to to the largest and the largest by two or three times the second contingent, which is Iran. They're also setting up a huge number of companies in Turkey. That figure rose more than eight times over between 2021 and 2022, climbing to 1,363. And that's data from the Union of Chambers and Commodity Exchanges of Turkey. There's a big flow of money into Turkey. And, you know, one of the things that happens if you buy Turkish property, if you spend $400,000 on a Turkish property, uh, you also get a, a Turkish passport. So that that huge spike in Turkish property purchases is probably also quite closely tied to a huge spike in Turkish passport issues to Russians. That's really interesting. Can we flip this question around then and ask, how does this benefit Turkey? They've become a lot more closely tied to Russia. They're allies and they've made a geopolitical alignment there, which which is quite interesting because Erdogan is really playing uh, quite a juggling game because he's also supplying weapons to Ukraine. Turkey is part of NATO and, and so they are... It's got quite a balancing match mm. there. But, you know, I mean, that's a big economic benefit. I mean, with the inflow of Russian money, that, that's largely been coming in in dollars. And I, we're talking tens of billions in US dollars coming into Turkey at a time where the currency has gone haywire. Mm. And they're grappling with mad inflation. Actually, that's been a very valuable thing for the Turkish Central Bank. Can we talk a little bit about the super yachts you've mentioned, why does every oligarch seem to have a super yacht? Or several. <laughs> why do rich men like to buy large boats? <laughs> um, I won't be too crude there. It's the ultimate status symbol and it gives you this degree of freedom. You can roam the world at, at your ease. It's a little bit like owning a private jet and a lot of them do own private jets, except you are much more free from you know, the restrictions and the kind of bureaucracy that surrounds that. It is so easy to sort of draw up these maps. These super yachts, if you are of a certain size, you have to be submitting AIS data so they can be tracked, which is how come uh, it is so easy to sort of draw up these maps. Final question from me really is um, the Turkish election is this Sunday. What might this mean for the oligarchs and Russian businessmen based in Turkey? Do we have a sense of how this might impact them? Yes, there's a big discussion going on about how much could change. Some people are relatively optimistic that this could bring a bit of a turning point in Turkey's approach. I mean, there are a couple of scenarios. The, the, the first thing to say is that, you know, the Western allies have, I think, been holding off pushing Turkey on cracking down because they don't want it to become a flashpoint in the election. So whoever wins after the election, even if it's still Erdogan, 
there, there's likely to be a bit more pressure, a bit more momentum, and it is going to become harder for him to be such an outlier. So, so that's sort of one scenario. I mean, the other scenario is if the opposition wins, and I think last time I checked, they were marginally ahead in the polls. Yeah, and they, they've been campaigning on, on, well, being very different to Erdogan, being far more pro-democracy, and, and it is likely that there would then be much more of a realignment with the West. I don't think anybody is ever suggesting that, you know, these oligarchs are going to have their assets seized in Turkey, but uh, certainly their movements could become a bit more difficult. And there's already some tension over, you know, for example, the... uh, people that service the yachts, some of those are Western companies, and and it's getting tricky for them to, to kind of do business or justify doing business that's going to start hitting them in other ways. So yes, we could see a, a turning point after the 14th, but I, I don't think it is going to be doom for, for wealthy Russians. Melissa, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything we haven't mentioned that you think is important for our listeners to hear? I think we sort of talk about sanctions or we we talked about sanctions at the beginning of the war as if this was going to solve things. And and there was a lot of self-congratulation, I think. And I think we are at a point now where we should take a step back and think, well, how much has it actually done? Are we actually changing the course of Russia's invasion of Ukraine? And, and I, I think it's quite clear that they don't go far enough. But uh, that's my personal opinion. That was Melissa Lawford, The Telegraph's economic reporter. Now, on the podcast, we were very pleased earlier today to welcome Charlie Hancock. Charlie is a freelance reporter and a final year student at Oxford University. Yesterday, she attended an event in the city where the Russian ambassador to the UK, Andrei Kelin, answered questions about Russia's foreign policy and the war in Ukraine. We invited Charlie to join Ukraine the latest and tell us what she heard. Hi, David, and hello, everyone. Thanks for having me on. Yep, so yesterday afternoon, the Oxford Russian Club, not Oxford University, hosted the Russian ambassador to the UK, Andrei Kellen, for a question and answer session. When I saw this, I was immediately interested. And there was a screening process in order to get into the event. You had to sign up. And then if you weren't already a member of the Russian society, you had to pay an entrance fee. And then before the event started, you were given the details of the location, which you were asked not to reveal. And once there, there were perhaps about 20 people in the room. And although there was some robust questioning from the audience throughout most of it, Andrei Kellen, he he was spreading the Russian narrative about the conflict and continuing the pattern that he's already shown in some of his interviews of denying that Russia has committed atrocities in Ukraine. Did he say anything that was particularly surprising to you listening and somebody who's been following the full-scale invasion? There was nothing he said that surprised me. There were a couple of occasions, perhaps semantically, where he did use the word war instead of special military operation, which a couple of people in the audience said to me afterwards they found um, they found interesting. And also, when he was questioned about whether there was factionalism in the Russian army and whether 
the Kremlin had control of Putin. His response was simply to say that this factionalism only existed in Western newspapers, that it wasn't true, that Prigozhin was trying to mislead people, and that he, the ambassador there, he wasn't a propagandist, and that he was telling us things which we were, weren't being told by the press. Charlie, hi, it's Dom here. If I could, uh, if I could jump in, please, just ask a question. Thanks so much for covering that for us last night. OK, so Kellyn says what we expect him to say. He just he does his sort of little chuckle brother, hoo, 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 you know, then goes off and, you know, as you say, deny, distract, you know, all the rest of it. Fine. So he's going to say that. No, no, nil point there. What about the other audience members? Were, were the, who are the people? As you say, it's nothing to do with Oxford University. This, although they style it as they, with the title of the group, they try and hint at a link to Oxford. But there is no formal link to Oxford University at all. But the other audience members there were they and those that were sort of warmer to Kelly or outright, outright supporters of Russia's position. Were you able to speak to them at all? Were they were they absolutely died in the war? Were they just as much on message, or could you actually have a conversation with any of these people? I'm going to have to be slightly careful here because the event was placed under a partial Chatham House rule where the comments of the ambassador could be discussed and reported. But we were asked not to reveal the identities of any of the attendees in order to protect protect them because some of them were worried about that. But what I can say is that the majority of the audience were very combative and were sceptical of his narrative and asked challenging questions. But there were a small number who actively said that they agreed with the Russian narrative and that the Western narrative were lies and that they were fully behind Russia all the way. Charlie, can I ask, what was the reaction in the city of Oxford itself? Was there much, was there any protests in, in support or against? What, what did you see there? There was a small protest outside on the day. One of the reasons why the location was kept secret was to try and minimise any protests, but the location leaked. So there were some people out there. The university, Ukrainian society, they have released a statement. They've been speaking to Cherwell, which is the university's independent student newspaper, with their dismay at this event. And the university themselves has distanced themselves from the club. What was interesting, that, what I found interesting, though, was that the reaction from the student body as a whole seemed quite muted. And the Oxford student body is often not very muted. When the Israeli ambassador, on the two occasions when the Israeli ambassador came to speak at the Oxford Union within the past two months, both times she was greeted by very large, very energetic protests, numbering in well over 100 people. There were perhaps a dozen to 20 people outside the event yesterday afternoon. And although I'd never rely on some of the university's anonymous forums to gauge a student mood because they have their moderators, they're not very transparent about their moderation and the posts that get through, I very strongly believe, don't show a reliable narrative. But there have been very few people who have been talking about the appearance of the Russian ambassador. They've been talking about other things. That's fascinating. Thank you, Charlie. Can I just ask finally, um, anything you haven't mentioned about this rather extraordinary visit and question and answer session that you attended? Any, anything you think our listeners should know and understand? There was one remark at the end of the talk when um, he was asked about Russia's geopolitical status, when Ambassador Callan actually said that he believed that Russia was a European country and that the, con- the country's reliance on China was temporary and he hoped that there could be more concord with the West in the future. 
But this was only if the two conditions that he set out in a little address that he gave before the question and answer session were met, which was that the threat to Russia, as he saw it, to the threat of Western particularly military and financial support to Ukraine was neutralized, and that the welfare of Russian speakers in Ukraine, as they saw it, was secured. A lot of the questions that the audience asked him were about Russian speakers in other countries and why Russia had not invaded them in order to try and secure their interests and secure the Russian language in the region. Thank you, Charlie. Now, there have been several interesting developments in Germany in the past few weeks, so we're pleased to be able to welcome back to the podcast Dr. Thomas Clausen. Dr. Clausen works at a liberal think tank in Berlin, and he's here to give us some updates, namely Germany's support for Ukraine, Russian activities in the country, and the shifting sands of public opinion about the war. A historian by training, he and Francis also discuss a subject that several listeners have asked us about, the legacy of the Treaty of Versailles at the end of World War I and how it informs, or misinforms, the way leaders approach foreign policy today. Here is their conversation. Thank you for your time today, Thomas. Always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Whenever you join us, I start by asking for the state of play in Germany on the subject of Ukraine. What's changed since we last heard from you several weeks ago? Maybe at first we can look at the level of material support for Ukraine, which is, I think, the most important. In March, 18 2A6 Leopards have been delivered, as well as 40 Marder infantry vehicles, as well as ammunition. So if we take a look at the Ukraine support tracker of the Kiel Institute for World Economy, Germany's military aid now stands at around 3.6 billion euros, compared to the US's 43.2 billion and the UK's 6.6 billion. But of course, it always depends a bit on what numbers you take. However, if we look at government support as a whole, so including the EU share of the respective countries and financial assistance, the aid of Germany, the UK and the United States all stand at 0.4% of GDP, whereas uh, Latvia stands at 1.4%, Estonia at 1.3%, and Poland at 0.9%. So one can see that roughly the major Western countries are similar, but the Baltic states and Poland, they are way ahead. Another interesting statistic of the Kiel Institute is the government support to Ukraine by a country group, because then we can see that the total aid of the United States amounts to 71.3 billion euros, and the aid of the EU countries and the EU institutions stands at 61.9 billion euros. So my overall conclusion compared to the previous episodes hasn't really changed. It is still far too little support, I would say. Months have been wasted, especially in summer and autumn, and especially with view to the potential Ukrainian counteroffensive but it's not as bad as some pundits have been saying. Secondly, we can look at Boris Pistorius. That's the other major development in the past couple of months, the new Minister of Defense. He has made some surprisingly bold moves to reform the ministry. He visited Kiev in early February, and he's been also clear in interviews that Ukraine must win the war, which has been also been very clear on that. So, so far his moves have been welcomed, not only by the governing coalition, but also by the conservative opposition in Germany. And also, for instance, the Ukrainian Minister of Defense, who called Pistorius a friend of Ukraine. He scores also extremely well in opinion polls, but he still has a very tough road ahead and it's not clear how successful he will, he will be in the end. 
And finally, maybe we can look at the popular level of support in Germany for Ukraine. And there's a new survey that was published today by the uh, ZDF Politbarometer, which shows in general that the majority of the Germans are dissatisfied with the coalition as a whole, and only 43% think they are doing a good job. But uh, the latest numbers of support for Ukraine are a bit older. They come from April, and they say that 28% of Germans think that Germany should offer more military support. 45% think it's the right amount, and 22% say there should be less support for Ukraine. And I think we should really take a closer look at the latter group. Well, yes, on this question of, of popular support for the war in Germany, a week or so ago, I, I referenced an interesting story regarding Putin's ambitions to work on promoting narratives in Germany, especially those harboured by those on the far left and the far right, which advocate against supporting Ukraine and take a more pro-Russian stance. How have we learned about this and what can you provide us with on this? Yes, it's an excellent article by Catherine Belton, who's one of the world's foremost experts on the current Russian leadership, and two journalists from the Washington Post, Stuart McKennett and Shane Harris. And they had been looking at a number of Russian documents that were obtained by European intelligence services. And in these documents, it becomes clear that Kremlin officials have been trying, and I quote, to build an anti-war sentiment in Europe and dampen support for Ukraine. Uh, of course, in a context where Putin could stop the war at any moment, anti-war means anti-self-defense or anti-Ukrainian self-defense. And these documents show that the Kremlin seeks to forge an alliance between the far left and the far right in Germany. So on the one hand, there's Die Linke, which is a renamed version of the former East German Communist Party with a few additions, and the Alternative for Germany, a right-wing populist party that is also especially strong in East Germany. And after the so-called anti-war demonstration, which took place in Berlin on the 25th of February of this year, and which was attended by members of both Die Linke and of the AfD, I wrote that Putin has managed to offer palatable narratives to both the extreme left and right, even though he has not managed to sway public opinion as a whole. And I think that's, that still holds very true, and these new documents give a glimpse into how Putin works. But I don't think they have caught anyone really by surprise. After all, Putin is a trained KGB man who has been conducting this type of operation for most of his life and who's always been very clear that he seeks to influence key figures in all his neighboring countries, including, above all, Germany. Well, staying on this very interesting theme, two journalists, I understand, published a book recently called Die Moskau Connection, Das Schröder Netzwerk und Deutschlands Weg in die Behängigkeit. So that roughly translates as the Moscow Connection, Schröder's network and Germany's path into dependency. It hasn't been translated into English yet, but I wondered if you wanted to comment on it. Yes, I think it's an excellent book and very, very timely and very important by two journalists from the FAZ conservative newspaper in Germany by Reinhard Bingener and Markus Wehner. And they it's basically show how um, Schröder forged a network, he, going back all the way to his early days in Lower Saxony, uh, Hanover 96, a football club, uh, plays an important role. And it's clear that there are some names that come up all over and over again, like Frank-Walter Steinmeier, the current president, but also former ministry, Minister for the Economy, Brigitte Zypris, and lesser-known people such as Heino Wiese, they turn up already in the early 90s. Some have studied with Schröder. They join him when he becomes minister-president of Lower Saxony. And they also gradually build connections to Moscow. 
And it's very interesting then to, to see, and the authors show this absolutely brilliantly, how they use platforms such as the German-Russian Forum or the Petersburg Dialogue to sort of strengthen connections to Russia. Then there's Gazprom, who sponsors Schalke 04, another German football club. Then the Russians give away honorary titles, or in the case of Smaller Fish, they invite politicians to all expenses pay trip to Russia. And at the center is North Stream 2. And we talked, uh, I think, a year ago or so about the very important book by Jens, uh, by Jens Hofsgaard, Greed, Gas and Money. And this is um, also at the center of this story that here it becomes clear that Putin definitely has Schröder in his pocket and that Nord Stream 2 is a pivotal geopolitical instrument of the Russians to bind Germany to them, to make Germany dependent on Russia, but also to circumvent uh, Ukraine. It's a striking book, very well researched, but it's also mostly based on articles and insights that have been known for a very long time. So they are quoting lots and lots of newspaper articles, documentaries, etc. And the question is really why, why no one has sort of taken offense for so long. So now there was a new court ruling that the Bundestag was in its right to remove Schröder from the Bundestag. So he used to have an office, as all former chancellors do, and the Bundestag denied this privilege to Schröder, but that's still a very small step. He's still a member of the SPD, although that has been challenged. And he's sort of, a lot of the people that also come up in this book are still in power or still sort of left alone, maybe a bit speechless about what has happened. But it's, I don't think that there has been a proper reckoning of Russia's influence in Germany or that is in other European countries uh, so far. Well, something for future historians to work on, no doubt. Another interesting story I saw recently is that Angela Merkel's legacy has been criticised by some members of her own party amid the controversy over her leadership being honoured potentially with the Germany's highest order of, of merit. Senior figures within the CDU suggested that she wasn't a worthy recipient with the party's deputy leader adding that she'd made grievous errors during her time in power pretty strong i just wonder what you made of this and how widespread is that feeling within her own party but also within germany more broadly given of course the events you just referred to with nord stream and dependency on russia and all of these all of these subjects Well, the, I don't think it's that surprising. I'm, uh, Angela Merkel's relationship with her party was always rather peculiar. So she's, I don't think she was ever very close to the party itself. She, wasn't almost, she was almost aloof of her party. And they were very happy to support her as a chancellor because there's a nickname for the German conservatives that says it's basically a society for the election of the German ch chancellor. And Angela Merkel for 16 years managed that role very, very well. So she was very good. She was very electable, so to speak. And she, I mean, being in power for 16 years is a remarkable feat in any democracy. But there, has always, there were always conflicts about her refugee policies, about stepping down from nuclear even about some sort of cultural issues. And I think that, in a way, it's, it's not surprising now that criticism comes up. What is more surprising, I think, is that she has almost vanished now from political life. So there are a few very well-orchestrated events where she made a few, gave a few interviews with sort of positive interviewers. But, she's, but when she stepped down two years ago, we thought, okay, She will be a very much a presence for presence for years to come, and now we are elder statesman precisely. And there's now a, a sort of a popular crime series 
whereas Merkel is being portrayed as a sort of modern Miss Marple that solves crime cases in the Uckermark, somewhere in Mecklenburg-Pomerania, but it's not, she's very much not a public figure anymore. And I think that's maybe more telling. But also, I don't think that the criticism itself comes so much, isn't really focused on her policies regarding Russia. I think also because the SPD is very much the party that's in the focus here. That's very interesting. Well, turning to history, as a fellow historian, I've been keen to discuss the legacy of the Treaty of Versailles with you for some time. It seems to me that a certain narrative has been established, which is rather oversimplistic, namely that the humiliation Germany experienced under the terms of Versailles made World War II inevitable. And this is used by figures such as the Archbishop of Canterbury here in Britain to argue that Russia, and and I'm quoting from him directly, must not be treated like Germany after the First World War and should be allowed to recover when the Ukraine conflict ends. Now, for one, most historians today don't generally endorse this view of Versailles. They say that modern analysis of the economics of reparations suggests that Germany could have paid them, for one. But more importantly, I think the suggestion that punishing a country in the manner of Versailles, or at least punishing a country at all, which I think is the context here, will inevitably backfire and lead to fatal problems further down the road, is a false one if one looks at history. What arguably led to World War II was not was not intervening in Germany in 1935-36, when the Wehrmacht was nowhere near as powerful, for instance. And according to that view, it wasn't Versailles that was the fateful or fatal mistake, but the World Wall Street crash in 1929 and not intervening in Germany, as I say, in the mid-1930s. You're an expert on this period. You've got a doctorate in Nazi Germany. What are your reflections on that argument? And feel free to demolish it if you so wish. Uh, no, no. Uh, well, first of all, I think I, I, well, I have huge respect for Justin Welby. I think my German Lutheran church could actually learn a lot in terms of moral and political clarity when it comes to speaking about Russia's war of aggression. But you're right, I also don't really think it's a good comparison, albeit for slightly different reason. So first of all, most importantly, the Treaty of Versailles was one of the treaties that concluded a world war with millions of dead. And Russia's war against Ukraine is much closer to the colonial and imperial wars of the 19th and 20th century. It is not a conflict that has been taking place on Russian territory, with the only exceptions of a few raids on military targets in Belgorod and drone attacks in, on Engels Air Base. But it's not a, a war where sort of Russian territory is in danger and there's also no outcome where any sort of Ukrainian troops will march into Moscow. So Russia's existence is not on the line in this conflict. Maybe Putin's life by now, but certainly not uh, Russia's uh, existence. And the only thing that Ukraine wants is to defend, uh, self-defense. Secondly, um, in the case of the First World War, one can at least make the case that the question of war guilt is slightly muddled. I think that's a, a conversation for a completely different time, but we already had this uh, sort of debates in 2014 on the anniversary. Of course, one can talk about the blank check and about the invasion of Belgium, but, of, but then there's also the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, there's Russia's mobilization, which maybe is also now being seen in a slightly different light. So what, how do you react to Russia mobilizing its army if you are Germany in 1914? I think one can at least make arguments for different sides and sort of the only thing that, that I would want to say on this in this context today is that I think all contemporaries at the time could at least sort of reasonably believe that their country was waging a just war even though one might disagree with with that, I think it's 
different from the war now, which is very clear cut. I don't think there's, in history, things are very rarely black and white. I mean, I think the Second World War is an example, but this is also a very clear black and white example. It's, it's Russia's aggression and there's no, no sort of space for doubt here or for controversy. And there won't be a Fisher debate 60 years down the line, I hope, where actually it was NATO all along. I think that's a useless idea. And thirdly, there's also the context of international law. So there's a very good book by Marcus Pike on peace through law, which sort of sees Versailles as a milestone in the development of international law. And this is also a key difference. I mean, um, humanitarian international law has been, been developing in the 19th century. A friend of mine, Raphael Schaefer, also wrote a very good book on sort of how humanitarianism was used as a vehicle to basically use international law for political interests, but we didn't have a sort of rules-based international order in 1918, and politicians had to make that up as they went. I mean, and this is now completely different. I mean, we had the Budapest memorandum, we had, it, it was very clear that Ukraine is a sovereign state, and Putin just broke all of these treaties. So that's also, I would say, a, a difference. Versailles was an attempt, maybe, it's a very difficult attempt to come to terms with the complexities of the end of the war, but there was also not a clear framework of how to do that. And there is a framework now, a legal framework, and in that framework, Ukraine is a sovereign nation. And there's also no sort of debate on that. And finally, and I think that's also the most important difference and also the most obvious sort of point one could make, the Treaty of Versailles was concluded with the democratic leadership of the newly founded Weimar Republic. So a lot of the problems when it comes to the question of humiliation is that it was sort of the, the Democrats of the Weimar Republic, the, the Republican leadership that had to sign it. And that was quite, quite a huge burden. And I would still agree that it was a huge burden for the young republic. But I also can't see if now the democratic opposition took over Russia, they uh, removed Putin from power, they open about the devastation that has been brought upon Ukraine, that there's now any desire to humiliate potentially and true democratic leadership. So that's, so I think the analogy doesn't work for that reason. But then there's also the more concrete point, and it also shows how sort of it's, it's always a bit difficult to use history as an analogy or, like, or to, to focus on historical analogies. And that is that I don't think that the framework of, of humiliation makes any sense at all in the context of Putin. It's very clear that he feels already very humiliated because of uh, 1989. So he's been very clear that the breakdown of the Soviet Union is sort of the moment when he and Russia got humiliated. And the very existence of countries such as Estonia, the, the independence of Poland, etc. That's the humiliation for Putin. And if we wanted to sort of assuage that feeling, we would have to give up the independence and the freedom and also the, the lives of millions of uh, people. And that's simply out of the question. So I don't think that in this case, Versailles is a good point of comparison. Maybe it's, it's better to think about the Russo-Japanese war, which is also a reminder that Russia can lose wars and they can conclude a treaty. And that's it. And it has huge political consequences domestically when, of course, in Russia-Japanese war, you know, yes, arguably sowed the seeds of the true. overthrow of the Tsar. That's a fascinating point you just made, Thomas, and one that I've not heard before about the 
the humiliation that Putin claims he suffered, that he's already got that narrative. You know, this idea that's being peddled that you know we mustn't humiliate Putin because it would be disastrous. He has been peddling this narrative now for many, many years, and it is a core tenet of his leadership in Russia and his power base. And my- yeah, go on. Plus, I think it's also a question of he can tell his audience, his domestic audience, what he wants. So the people who believe Putin will also believe a completely different narrative where he has saved Russia at the last moment by stopping the war in Ukraine rather than Russian territory or something like that. And the people who know about what Russia has been doing and in Ukraine and the crimes that have been perpetrated. I mean, that's in a way the actual disgrace. So if we see the dead people in shopping centers, etc. I mean, that is, so, so, to, so to speak, from a from an humane point of view, the actual humiliation. And that's been brought upon Russia by Putin. And I don't think there's anything we can do to to make that go away. Something you said struck me when you were talking about this being a black and white war. And this is something that's actually, I think, to your point, quite unusual in history. You know, it tends to be that if you're looking at, say, the 19th century, the 18th century, further back than that, it's very rare to conceptualize war in this way. It was always about balance of power and everybody's sort of got a point of view that needs to be shared out. And that mentality, you could argue, was totally, I suppose, eroded by the world wars and the post-war consensus that you just spoke about. I suppose my question is that Do you see the Second World War as creating this kind of moral framework as right and wrong in Europe? And do you see that as something that is necessarily a good thing? Or do you think this is something that actually perhaps leads to a slightly more naive view of foreign policy than maybe people a century or more? I mean, that's a very tough question. First of all, I do think that I mean, the, the idea that there's such a thing as a just war has a long history going back all the way to Augustine, etc. So in, in that sense, I think this the idea that certain wars are just and have to be fought is not that new. It's also always a bit dangerous because it makes reconciliation and sort of understanding the other's point of view different, difficult and in the context of sort of total war when we have societies that can be mobilized, we have weapons of mass destruction, it's very dangerous to sort of paint the opposing force as an absolute evil. But I also don't think that this is something that anyone is doing at the moment. I mean, there's no one calling for... I mean, NATO has been very, very careful not to get entangled into the war in the war on the ground, which I think makes a lot of sense. It's very clear that no one wants sort of regimes change in Russia. No one is trying to assassinate Putin. No one is calling for Russia to be now sort of wiped off the map. And I think this is, it's it's very important to sort of remain civil. It's just about Ukraine's right to self-defense. And that's something that's been in the Carter of the United Nations. Her borders have been guaranteed by international treaties that Russia has been signed. And in, in that case, I think it's, that's where the clarity comes from. It's very, it's almost a legal issue where it's very clear who's responsible and who's not. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to make this into an issue of sort of, this is just typical of the Russian people as a whole, or this is some sort of, I mean, fight between Satanists and angels, which is what, incidentally, what, uh, what Putin is trying to do. But it's also, I think, very clear that one shouldn't say that there's a balanced point of view and that it's just about NATO. And there are simply propaganda lies that Putin has been very deliberately peddling. And we have documents now that show that he's been doing that. 
We recently did a Q&A episode here and the question I was put, it was put to me by David on behalf of a listener was how could this war have been prevented? And I think what they meant by that is sort of looking at this from a historian's perspective, you know, in the short and the long term, what could have been done? I'm not going to tell you what my answer was. Um, I'm going to put it to you as a as a man of history. What do you think, if you absorb all of the lessons of the last century or more, what mistakes did the West make? What mistakes have Russia made that have got us to this situation? Well, there's a famous quote by Hegel that the owl of Minerva only starts to fly at dusk. And I think this is also true now. Historians are very good at hindsight. They can tell you exactly what should have been done retrospectively, but it's absolutely impossible to predict the future. And that also means it's very difficult to sort of look back into the immediate past and say, this is the turning point. I think historians will probably be debating this question for decades and maybe centuries to come. From a from the sort of perspective of May 2023, probably it's it's clear that the the appeasement was wrong. That it should have been much much clearer. Maybe already in the in the early 90s, certainly after the wars in Chechnya, after uh, Putin's war in Georgia, these should all have been moments when the West should have realized this is a huge danger and everything should have been done to stop appeasement and to make sure that Putin's threat is contained. And I've been talking to a German general last week who's been writing extremely good articles, Klaus Olshausen, on the subject. And he sort of pointed me to articles from 2008 and from 2014 where he's making exactly these points. That So it's, I think, probably that, that was the right answer all along. It's, one should have boosted defense. One should have made clear to Putin that the sovereignty and the independence of countries such as Georgia and uh, Ukraine is not to be is, is not on the table, and then maybe uh, deterrence would have worked. Um, it's clear that Putin's feeling that he had Germany in the back, that people were okay with the annexation of Crimea, that they believed the lies about MH17, that they believed the false story about a civil war in Donbas, and then we all went to. Russia and celebrated the World Cup. I mean, it's it's very clear that this is this has been a disaster now in retrospect. And yeah, I think it would probably have been better to be a bit tougher on Russia and not to be yeah yeah. Well, I'm reassured because in that we agree. We've said very similar answers. To end on a lighter note, Thomas, it was the King's coronation over the weekend. I understand you saw the King on his recent visit to Germany. How was he received there? Well, um, CNN has called it a triumphant state visit, and I tend to agree. I think it was a wonderful event. There were the, the Union Jack was flying uh, on the uh, Großer Stern next to the Victory Column, and I, I think um, also I'm always very happy when I can see that sort of the there's some sort of cultural rapprochement between uh, Britain and Germany, which is always uh, the. Uh, Sometimes a bit difficult, and I think a very nice symbol is that Motsi Mabuza was invited to the state dinner, and she's both the URI at Strictly Come Dancing and on the German version of Let's Dance, and since I like the latter very much, I think it's a, it's a nice symbol of sort of Anglo-German cultural yeah, rapprochement. Just don't mention the World Cup. And he did speak in Germany, didn't he? In German as well. Um, yes, which um, is, he, um, tr- he even tried to crack a joke, which is, I think, unheard of in German parliament. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> 
The Germans have a sense of humour. Oh, I don't believe it. <laughs> but anyway, Thomas, thank you so much, as ever, for your insights. Absolutely fascinating. And we look forward to having you on again very soon, I'm sure. Yes, thank you very much for having me, as always. That was Dr. Thomas Clausen and Francis Sternley. Now we return to the panel for their final thoughts. I asked Dom to go first. Yeah, well, just to say, I mean, I, I, I do keep asking the embassy here, the Russian embassy, for an interview with Ambassador Kellin. They never replied to me. I also asked them if, if, I'm, if I'm ever allowed to go to Russia. I keep saying I'd like to go to Russia. And am I, am I allowed? Will I get a visa? Because, you know, I've been sanctioned. But again, they, they ignore that. But hey, Andre, if you're listening, you're welcome to come into the Telegraph any time for a nice sit down. We'll lock the doors, have a nice sit down chat. And uh, and yeah, we'll try and we'll try and work it all out. But as a final thought, back to this, um, whatever's happening in, in Ukraine at the moment. So I said yesterday that Ukraine will have this counteroffensive planned, or even if the whole thing is just one great information operation to spin the gyros of Russian planners and buy time, Ukraine will have contingency ops planned. Anyway, I said they they will probably see the infighting between Wagner, the Russian MOD, the various militias in Bakhmut as an area, uh, well, an opportunity to be exploited, and suggested that they might they might actually be bounced with their success there. There's you know, great pressure; these two sides clashing in Bakhmut, plus this infighting. I wonder if that was a slight sort of battlefield hernia, if you like, this move, this two K move over the last couple of days and I just I was positing whether or not they've been bounced into launching the counteroffensive now and I I use that great Mike Tyson quote it's a lovely quote he said um, you know everyone has a plan till you get punched in the face and I said I reckon Ukraine has a plan but maybe they're being bounced into it because Russia is pun- punching itself in the face so I wondered if what we saw in Bakhmut was um, was planned or responding to change in circumstances. But I just say with what's happening, what we seem to be seeing today, if they have launched the counteroffensive or, or even if they want time to think about what might be happening and whether to respond, I, I would expect an increase in Ukrainian strikes across the country, up and down the line, not just in the whatever they're saying today, the, the 90Ks around Bakhmut, but all over the place, across the whole front, Different weapon systems, different targets, possibly increased use of special forces raid over the border, maybe increased support for partisan activity inside Russia and inside Belarus, you know, deep strikes on fuel dumps, headquarters, log nodes, all that kind of stuff, just to keep Russian mines fixed. So these might not be big in scale, these attacks, but I would have thought they'd be big in scope, as in the range of activity, the different type of activity and the geographic range. So, uh, you know, what they want, to, they want to put Russians on the back foot. They want Russians to be thinking, the Russian planning staff to be thinking, is this it? Is this the counteroffensive? Where are the diversions? Where are the main attacks? Which do we respond to? Which do we ignore? You know, just throw them on the back foot. So I would have thought we'd see a whole load. I think it'd be quite a confusing situation over the weekend with attacks all over the place, seemingly not knitted together, arguably. And I think this is just all part of of moving to a different phase and whether or not this is the actual counteroffensive or, like I say, just just buying time to think about what to do now with this change in circumstances. But, yeah, I, my prediction is it's going to be quite a hot weekend. Storms are coming, boys. Thank you, Don. Charlie Hancock, as our guest, would you like to go next? It maybe sum up what we think we learnt from the Russian ambassador in Oxford. 
Thank you. And Dom, I hope you do manage to get an interview with Ambassador Kennan one day. I think one of the main things that I learned from it was he didn't say anything that I hadn't read before, in part because like many of this podcast listeners, I have been reading about this war almost incessantly. But what was fascinating was how it feels to have reality denied to your face. Lots of us will be familiar with, with the Kremlin narratives about why Russia invaded, or well, they don't say invaded Ukraine, why they're persisting with the war, their denial of atrocities that have been taking place. But when you're actually, it's one thing to read about that or to hear somebody recount it on the podcast. It's quite another to be sitting in a living room in a private house with a man who peddles those narratives, who represents the Russian government, looking you in the eye and telling you that didn't happen. It's as if reality almost breaks in front of your face and you're looking through a crack into some parallel universe. Charlie Hancock, thank you very much for joining us. Francis Sternley, would you like the very final thoughts today? Thanks, David. I was talking about Eurovision earlier, and loyal listeners may recall that last year I said that as the son of a Eurovision fanatic, my mother, I would do my utmost to attend the contest in Liverpool for the podcast. The plan being that I would try and interview Ukrainian performers, fans and those helping to stage the contest in the UK. Well, I'm pleased to report that on Saturday, I will no longer be assistant comment editor for The Telegraph, but will be Ukraine the latest unofficial Eurovision correspondent. So I'll be wearing my flashiest shirt and taking the train up to Liverpool tomorrow morning, which will be a laugh because it's technically a train strike and will be formerly one of the accredited journalists covering the contest and will have access behind the scenes throughout the day and will be able to, as I say, meet some interesting people who are performing and also involved in organising the event. I'm planning to live tweet it, take some photos and videos, although given there'll be inevitably some cold beverages, I may have to keep those at a minimum the longer the event goes on. But I will, as I say, do my utmost to give you a flavour of the event. Then next week, you'll hear some of the interviews of those that I speak with. I've already got some lined up, including some familiar guests from the podcast. So stay tuned. If you want to follow what I'll be up to, just check out my Twitter handle, which will be in the description for this episode. And as I say, do do come along with me. There will inevitably be glitz, glamour and almost certainly ABBA. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. 
and you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Rachel Duffy.